You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist here on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest news and information and updates relating to mental health. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of news reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment. Welcome back, folks. This edition of Psychiatry Today will first air on America's Web Radio on January 29, 2014. But, of course, it is available for listening at any time on americaswebradio.com, as well as being played over that air. Different times of the week, besides Wednesday at 7, and again, I want to give a shout-out to those of you who download the podcast from iTunes. Thank you so much for your support. I want to remind you, too, that in addition to giving you the latest mental health news from this past week, I also want to be a resource for you if any of you listening have questions regarding mental health-related issues. Maybe you're having mental health problems and you don't know where to turn or you've tried to get help and it hasn't gone well, or maybe someone close to you is struggling with mental health issues and you're not sure what to do to make sure they get the help that they need. Regardless, let me be a resource for you, and you can send all your mental health-related questions to me or comments about a previous show or this show. Send them to me via email, and that email address is drscott, that's spelled D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. It's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. Well, leading off tonight's show, we are going to talk about a report that came out about how easy access to guns is tied to a higher risk of suicide and homicide. Now, believe me, I'm well aware this is going to be a very controversial issue, and how any of you listening to this feel about it is going to depend on how strongly you feel about our Second Amendment rights or not. Regardless, I'm going to try to take an objective look at the research that was done, even though I certainly have my own views on the subject. First of all, it is... It has been determined by this new study that you're more likely to kill yourself or to be killed if you have access to a gun. And this is not the first time that research has demonstrated this. People with access to a gun are three times more likely to commit suicide and almost twice as likely to be the victim of a homicide as people without a firearm available. Now, this report was published in the January 20th, 
issue of a very prestigious journal, Annals of Internal Medicine. If you have a firearm readily available and something bad has happened to you, you might make a rash, impulsive decision that will have a bad outcome. The issue of firearm accessibility garnered lots of attention following the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, when 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 20 children and six adults. Lanza's mother has been described as a gun enthusiast who owned at least a dozen firearms and often took her son to a local shooting range for target practice. Lanza shot his mother dead before going to the elementary school where he went on his killing spree before committing suicide. This new report analyzed the results of 15 previous gun studies, 13 of which were done in the United States. Gun ownership is higher in the United States than anywhere else in the world, and 31,000 U.S. deaths each year are attributable to firearms. The review specifically looked at intentional acts of violence rather than incidents of accidental death due to firearms. The researchers also adjusted the earlier study's results to account for the likelihood that mental illness could be the cause of violence. These are just normal gun owners, and we are seeing that gun owners are making very bad, impulsive decisions, said Engelmeyer, uh, who is a United States Army veteran. Andrew Engelmeyer, uh, lead author of the study, a specialist in study design and data analytics in clinical pharmacy and global health sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. Based on these results, people should try to limit access to firearms for a friend or loved one who is going through a rough patch in their life and experiencing emotional turmoil, according to David Hemingway, a professor of health policy at Harvard. He says, if someone's going through a bad period, you should at least lock the gun up or, even better, get the gun out of the house until things get better. And Hemingway wrote that in an editorial that accompanied the study. Now that seems pretty drastic, doesn't it? How would you like to be in a position of being close to someone who's going through a rough time in their life and tell them, hey, you know what? Uh, I think we need to take away and lock up your guns for a while so that you don't do anything stupid with them. That's probably a really good thing to do, a very caring, loving thing to do. But how do you think that person is going to take that? Isn't it possible they're going to react as if to say, what, you don't think I'm mentally stable enough to make sure I'm not going to use that thing to harm myself? And... You know, that's, that's quite a position to put somebody in. Now, interestingly, they found that men and women had striking differences in their personal risk when guns are around. 
men were nearly four times more likely to commit suicide when firearms were accessible than when they were not accessible. However, it is a well-known fact that when women commit suicide, they are much more likely to use poison such as an overdose, and much less frequently are they prone to use guns or other violent means. At the same time, women were almost three times more likely than men to be victims of homicide, most likely due to a fatal shooting prompted by a domestic argument. The evidence is strong that a gun in the home increases the risk that a woman will die during a domestic dispute, according to Dr. Hemingway, who is director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Center. Despite the results, Dr. Engelmeyer said the purpose of the study was not to discourage gun ownership. And that's an important point. He says this isn't a study about how bad guns are. It's really about understanding the risks of owning a gun. He said, and he goes on to say, I'm, I'm providing the evidence and letting people make their own decisions. Understand there's a risk, and as long as you understand the risk, that's the most important thing. Although the review found an association between access to guns and dying from murder or suicide, of course it cannot prove cause and effect. In his editorial, Dr. Hemingway argued that the risk is understated in Dr. Engelmeyer's research because the review excluded studies that looked at gun risk in whole populations rather than individuals. For example, studies were not included that showed places with higher levels of household gun ownership have higher rates of firearm suicide. And Dr. Hemingway concludes they made a very strong case, but I would argue that the case is even stronger. Not surprisingly, when the National Rifle Association was asked to comment on the research, they did not respond to that request. Well, <clears throat> my guess is they would use it to further their argument that it is not guns that kill, it is people who kill. And they would not be in favor of restricting someone's right to be in possession of their own firearms just because they were going through a hard time in life. Considering this issue brings to mind a law that was passed and put into effect in Florida which barred physicians from asking their patients about gun ownership. That's right, this law in Florida attempted to muzzle physicians and prevent them from asking a patient if they owned a firearm. Now, this law is squarely aimed at psychiatrists. It is a question that we must ask if we think a patient may be a danger to themselves or others, it is incumbent upon us to inquire of the patient and the family, are there firearms in the home? And why do we do that? We're trying to prevent this person who may be suicidal from using it to take their own life. 
the cynic may say, well, so fine, you lock away the gun. If someone's that determined to kill themselves, they'll just find another method. You're right. That's absolutely true. If someone is that bent on ending their life and there is no access to a firearm, yes, they will find another way. However, it may be difficult for lay people to understand and even more difficult for people staunchly pro-gun, but the fact remains that the accessibility to a firearm does make the decision more likely. Unfortunately, it's all too easy. You squeeze the trigger and it's all over. Whereas some other method will take a lot more effort and planning and someone may delay or change their mind. But when the gun is there, that's it. It, it may be all over and it may be too late. All right. Well, we're going to take a commercial break here. When we come back, we'll have more mental health news on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with you. And we're talking about a study that shows accessibility to firearms increases the risk of suicide and homicide compared to people who do not have access to firearms. And... <clears throat> Although most people in this country 
hold their Second Amendment rights dear, I do think it is important when someone is obviously not well mentally and is under a tremendous amount of stress, especially if it's financially, especially if it's uh, a severe stressor like bankruptcy, divorce, uh, loss of a loved one, what have you. It is probably a very safe and caring and loving thing to do to secure their firearms until they're feeling better and then let them have them back. And again, it's just for the person's safety. I know this is anathema to gun right advocates and uh, really to just uh, have personal freedom in general. But um, it's just about keeping someone safe. Now, of course, that's going to be my bias, being a psychiatrist and uh, knowing human behavior and knowing that if someone has ready access to a quick and lethal method, there's going to be a greater chance they're going to carry out the act of suicide as opposed to someone who does not have access to such a lethal and quick method uh, where the effort and planning to uh, carry out some other method may actually interfere with the decision to carry out the act of suicide. No, it's hard to understand, but in my opinion and in the opinion of many other people who study this issue, it is a fact. I know a lot of you are going to have feelings about that. A lot of you are going to disagree with me vehemently. Some of you may agree. That's fine. We'd love to hear your opinions about this issue, your feedback on what I have to say about it. So again, uh, feel free to send me your opinions and your feedback and your questions to this email address, Dr. Scott, that's D-R-S-C-O-T, at RadioSandySprings.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-A-N-D-Y-S-P-R-I-N-G-S.com. All right, well... <clears throat> Next topic up on tonight's show, some children's mental health updates, actually a couple in a row. First of the two, children who lose a close relative are at risk of mental problems. Children who experience the death of a family member are at slightly increased risk of very serious mental illness, psychotic illnesses such as schizophrenia later in life, according to a large new study. The risk is highest among children who had a sibling or a parent commit suicide. These new findings were published January 21st in the online edition of the British Medical Journal. Researchers analyzed data from nearly 947,000 children born in Sweden between 1973 and 1985. Of those children, 33% experienced the death of a family member before they reached age 13. More than 11,000 children were exposed to death from suicide, more than 15,000 to death from accidents, and more than 280,000 to death from natural causes. Among those who experienced the death of a family member as a child, 0.4% developed a non-affective psychosis, that means a psychotic illness not related to emotions or mood, 
like schizophrenia. Uh, what they're doing, folks, is drawing a distinction between just a pure psychotic illness like schizophrenia versus, let's say, bipolar disorder with psychotic features. Some people who become either very low or very high in the course of bipolar disorder also have psychotic features. But in schizophrenia, you don't usually have the prominent mood symptoms. Just under 0.2% developed so-called affective psychosis, that is one with mood symptoms, like bipolar disorder with psychosis or depression with psychosis. Overall, the increased risk of psychosis among people who suffered a death in the family during childhood and the risk was increased the earlier in childhood the death occurred. The greatest risk was those who experienced the death of a family member when they were aged newborn up to three years old. So you see, it's not even necessarily something that happens during a part of their life that they would remember. But just suffering this loss, even before the age when we begin to remember things, can have this impact. I think that's quite fascinating that uh, even though we don't remember the time up until age three or four, most of the time anyway, uh, certainly the central nervous system is affected by losses like this. Now, this increase in the risk of psychotic illness with uh, suffering these losses was small, but still significant in terms of the type of the death, the risk of psychosis was highest among those exposed to suicide in the immediate family, such as a parent or a sibling. And that was followed in turn by those exposed to death from accidents and then uh, the least uh, highest among those to deaths from natural causes. Research shows childhood exposure to death of a parent or a sibling is associated with excess risk of developing psychotic illness later in life, and this is particularly associated with early childhood exposure. So these are the conclusions of the study, and they feel that future studies should look at the broader contexts of parental suicide and parental loss in non-Western ethnically diverse populations that would uh, better enable scientists to draw conclusions about the effects, the effects of trauma and loss on the brain and how that results in developing psychotic illness. Well, so what, if any, take-home points can there be from this? Uh, really, it just means that if a child has lost a loved one, especially to an accident or suicide, they are going to be vulnerable and should be carefully and closely observed as they move through childhood and into and through adolescence. And if there are any signs of abnormal thought or thinking, the sooner they get into treatment, uh, the better their long-term outlook. We do know that the earlier you intervene, the less likely a psychotic illness can become disabling 
and impair someone's quality of life socially, educationally, and occupationally, but there must be very early and aggressive intervention. Somewhat comparable to autism. Uh, you know, we know that uh, the earlier autism is diagnosed and the more aggressively it's treated, the better the long-term outcome. Now let's go to another children's mental health-related article. Bullying sends 90,000 kids to the emergency room each year. 90,000. Each year, that many students sustain injuries at school as a result of other students deliberately trying to hurt them. That, according to a new forthcoming study in the journal Pediatrics. Folks, we have got to get that number way down. That is awful. Of the total estimated population of injuries suffered at school that required emergency room treatment, bullying and assault made up roughly 1 in 10 cases. Now, that rate may be, seem low given how much national attention is focused now on school shootings and bullying prevention efforts. But physical violence makes up the minority, with accidental trips, falls, cuts, and scrapes comprising the bulk of physical injuries at 40%. Though the research has its limits, no mention is made of where the trend is headed or how to prevent it from growing. Experts say there is much to glean from parsing through the data. Obviously, the number of injuries is concerningly high, especially when you realize that such a substantial number of injuries are occurring in the school setting, where safety measures are already in place. Researchers looked at emergency room visits at 66 hospitals over the course of eight years, between 2001 and 2008. They extrapolated their findings to a nationwide level, landing on an estimated total of 7 million visits. Of those, approximately 700,000 were the result of deliberate action, either between groups of students, parents, and police officers and students, or a lone student's choice to self-harm. The team averaged 92,000 emergency room visits per year over the study period, 96% of which were between groups of students. This gave the researchers an overall total of 88,000 deliberate injuries sustained per year as a result of bullying and assault. Intervention strategies must take place both in school and at home if parents wish to expect a certain degree of safety while they're away from their kids eight hours each day. Parents and physicians need to talk to children about violence and bullying in and out of school and try to address the issue at various levels, just like prevention efforts for any other medical illness. The data looked only at emergency room visits. The number of kids who were bullied and visited their family doctors, received treatment from a school nurse, or simply asked mom and dad to take care of them remains unknown. As parents, guardians, teachers, and physicians, we need to take an extra moment to talk to children 
about bullying and its consequences. It's only going to be by continuing to focus on this issue and talk to our children about it that those numbers are ever going to come down. But that is unacceptable that that many children are hurt and traumatized and need hospital emergency room treatment. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott on America's Web Radio. We'll be right back. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Hi, this is Kate Cop- inviting you to listen year-round to America's homegrown veggie show every Saturday at 10 a.m. Come on, follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Snipples.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy, back to work the next day, and it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow Sniffles.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest in mental health-related news. A little background for this next item. Several years ago, there was an article in a prestigious medical journal that purportedly claimed most antidepressant medication trials concluded that they didn't work much better than placebos. And this started a whole bunch of controversy. Uh, Obviously, antidepressant medications do help people, especially those who are severely depressed. The fact that the placebos have a very powerful effect is really just a consequence of the distorted way clinical trials for antidepressants are done and the distorted incentives that research subjects in clinical trials for antidepressants have uh, to report feeling better so that they continue to receive the benefits of being in a clinical trial. But nonetheless, certainly a report like that was seized upon by those who were skeptical about psychiatry and psychiatric medication in the first place. And that's why this report about a study on thinking positively about your migraine medication and that positive thinking causing the medication to work better 
that article caught my eye uh, to demonstrate that the placebo effect is very powerful and it works not only for medications that treat depression but also medications that treat migraine headache which is exquisitely painful and very difficult to treat and extremely disabling. Talk about mind over matter. This quirky new study suggests that just patients' expectations of what's going to happen with their migraine treatment can make a big difference in how they feel after treatment for a migraine. Boston researchers recruited 66 migraine patients in an attempt to quantify how much of their pain relief came from a medication and how much was due to what's called the placebo effect, the healing power of positive belief. More than 450 headaches later, they reported that it's important for doctors to carefully choose what they tell patients about a powerful medicine because the message could help enhance its benefits or blunt them. That's right, there can be a negative placebo effect or a reverse placebo effect, meaning an expectation of a treatment failing can actually lead to the treatment failing and the person not feeling better. Here's how it worked. First, the patients who suffer regular migraine headaches agreed to forego pain relievers for several hours during one attack, recording their symptoms for comparison with later headaches. That was a brave effort, I must say. Then for each of their next six migraines, the patients were given a different pill inside an envelope with a different message. Sometimes they were told it was an effective migraine drug named Rizotriptan, that was a positive message. Other times they were told it was a placebo, a dummy pill, suggesting no benefit or a negative message. Still other times they were told the, bill, the, the pill rather could be either one. That is, it could be the active medication, which would ex be expected to help them feel better, or the inert placebo that would not be expected to work. That's a neutral message. Sometimes the doctor's message was true. They were told they got the drug and sometimes they really did. Sometimes it was false because researchers had secretly switched the pills without the doctors knowing. Mixing up the possibilities allowed researchers to tease out how the same person's pain relief differed from migraine to migraine as his or her expectations changed. Of course, the real migraine drug worked far better than the dummy pill, but remarkably, people who knew they were taking a placebo still reported less pain than when they'd left their migraine untreated. The surprise? Patients' reports of pain relief more than doubled when they were told the migraine drug was real, then when they were told falsely that it was fake. So let's go over that again. When people were told it was real, even when the drug was fake, 
their reports of pain relief doubled anyway. They found the fake effective because they were told it was real. Now, this research was reported in the current issue of the journal Science Translational Medicine. Now, people reported nearly as much pain relief when they took a placebo that they thought was real as they did when they took the real drug which when they thought it was a fake. Let me say that again. People felt just as well when they took a placebo that they thought was real as they did when they took the real drug that they thought was fake. The more the researchers gave a positive message to the patient, the bigger the placebo effect was, whether they got the real drug or whether they got a fake. Now, this effect probably isn't purely psychological. The ritual of taking a medication may trigger some subconscious memory that could leave people feeling better even if they knew they'd taken a fake drug. In other words, what they're saying, and this makes sense, doesn't it, that just the act of putting a pill in your mouth, swallowing it, that's a conditioned response. You're used to when you do that in the past, you know that in about a half hour or so, you're going to feel less pain. So really, it's just a conditioned response along with your expectations. Now, scientists have long known that some people report noticeable improvements in pain and certain other symptoms when they're given a placebo. Some studies even have documented that a placebo actually can spark a biological effect. But scientists don't know why the placebo effect works or how to harness its potential benefit. The new research is an interesting attempt to answer some of those questions, at least for one kind of pain. And learning how much of an impact it makes could help design better studies of new drugs to ensure the phenomenon doesn't skew the results. In other words, how can we better design therapeutic drug trials to make sure the placebo effect doesn't interfere and therefore you get a truer picture of how the drug actually works. Whether you're talking about something that will treat pain or depression or high blood pressure, anything. For now, <clears throat> the research shows the power of positive thinking may be helpful in taking care of your migraine. So there you have it. Placebo effect, very powerful. Now in that study we just talked about, doctors were giving people a suggestion that they would have pain relief. In this next study we're going to talk about, apparently doctors aren't doing enough to discourage problem drinking. This, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta, doctors aren't talking often enough with their patients about the harmful effects of alcohol, even if those patients are binge drinkers. Only one in six adults says a doctor or health professional has ever discussed alcohol use with them, even though drinking too much can be harmful to health. The lack of dialogue holds true even for binge drinkers. 
Only one in four binge drinkers reported discussing their drinking with a health professional. And among drinkers who binge 10 or more times a month, only one in three has had a serious talk with their doctor regarding alcohol use. Only 17% of pregnant women said their doctor discussed alcohol use with them, even though drinking can harm the developing fetus. Such counseling can provide significant help to people who are problem drinkers. Counseling for no more than 15 minutes can result in a substantial reduction in problem drinking. It should be part of a of routine patient care in the same way that doctors screen for high blood pressure and high cholesterol, they should be screening for excess alcohol use and treating patients appropriately. The results of this research back up my own experience, which is when I see patients for the first time and talk to them about their alcohol use and counsel them about what is acceptable or not in terms of level of use of alcohol in the context of psychiatric illness and taking psychiatric medication, it is often the case that the patients tell me no one else has ever had this discussion with them, not their primary care physician and not even psychiatrists who have treated them in the past. At least 38 million American adults drink too much, even though most aren't alcoholics. For every one person who is an alcoholic, there are six who are problem drinkers. Now, what does that mean? What is the definition of problem drinking? Well, it can involve binge drinking or drinking too much on one occasion. Binge drinking is defined as having five or more drinks within a few hours for a man and four or more drinks for a woman. Excessive average weekly drinking. For men, that's 15 or more drinks on average a week and eight or more drinks for women. And lastly, any drinking by pregnant women or people under the age of 21. Also, a drink is considered five ounces of wine or 12 ounces of beer or one and a half ounces of liquor typically in the amount in a shot glass. <clears throat> now, we will conclude our discussion of problem drinking after this next commercial break, and we'll also have more mental health-related news. Looks like we're going to have a stress in the workplace update. We'll have that after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott on America's Web Radio. Be right back. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that throat itching and tickling, nasal itching, eye itching, skin itching, eczema, and hives are all signs of allergy? A person suffering from allergy does not always have sneezing and a runny nose. If you have noticed that these symptoms are always present year-round, you may have allergies to what you are eating. Foods such as wheat, 
eggs, dairy products, and corn are present in most foods. Corn in particular is present in most processed foods and soft drinks in the form of high fructose corn syrup. Completely removing these foods from your diet for at least two months can in some cases stop the symptoms. Keeping a food diary or getting tested for food allergies is the fastest way to find out what foods are causing your symptoms. If you think you have a food allergy, it is important to see a doctor who specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of allergy. By rotating the food into the diet once every two weeks, allergies can be controlled and you can still eat the food. This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with you. And we're talking about a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It shows physicians do not talk to their patients enough about problem drinking and counseling them to stop. Now, problem drinking causes an estimated 88,000 deaths in the United States each year, and it contributes to health problems such as heart disease, breast cancer, high blood pressure, and sudden infant death syndrome. You may ask, how can it contribute to SIDS? Well, if parents are problem drinkers, they may not be attentive enough to seeing that their baby is sleeping properly, for example, on their back. It also increases the rates of motor vehicle crashes, violence, suicide, and sexually transmitted diseases because people are more impulsive about sex and less apt to use protection when they are drinking heavily. Now, the study authors were careful to point out they're not telling people to stop drinking completely. They're not saying don't drink at all. What they are saying is that people who drink heavily They may have serious health problems. The CDC used patient survey data from 44 states and the District of Columbia to assess whether doctors are talking at all with those under their care about problem drinking. The researchers found that despite increased understanding of the health risks of problem drinking, doctors are talking with patients about alcohol use about as often as they did back in 1997 the last time the CDC looked at this problem. The healthcare system is not doing a good enough job. These days, doctors and health professionals have access to screening forms that can provide patients with a quick idea of whether they're drinking too much. Such screening is provided free of charge to patients under the Affordable Care Act as a preventive health service. Such frank talk with the doctor could reduce the amount of alcohol consumed 
by 25% among people who drink too much. Alcohol screening and brief counseling can help provide people with realistic goals and achieve those goals. Healthcare workers can provide the service to more patients and involve communities to help people avoid dangerous levels of drinking. I'll just add to that my own advice to people who suffer from depression and or anxiety or other mental health related problems. My recommendation for those people is to have no alcohol if possible or as little as possible given that alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. It can aggravate depression if you suffer from it or are prone to it. It also can interact very adversely and dangerously with psychiatric medication, which can lead to side effects and complications. And that's why I recommend a very strict limit of no more than two servings per week. And I understand and I'm aware that's, that seems very strict. But uh, more than two servings a week, and you're running the risk of potential adverse interactions and complications like I mentioned. And by the way, again, one serving, five-ounce glass of wine, 12-ounce beer, or ounce-and-a-half shot of liquor. Next up on tonight's show, a stress and the workplace update. A very positive one this time because it turns out more employers are stepping in to avert worker burnout. There are some companies who realize employees need to disengage sometimes. Volkswagen turns off some employees' email 30 minutes after their shifts end. Goldman Sachs is urging junior staff to take weekends off. BMW is planning new rules that will keep workers from being contacted after hours. My reaction to that was, they have to make a rule so that you're not contacted after hours? That's pretty bad. At least they're paying attention to it. But this surge in corporate beneficence isn't an indication that employers are becoming kinder and gentler. It's about the bottom line. After years in which the ease of instant communication via email and smartphones allowed bosses to place greater and greater demands on white-collar workers, some companies are beginning to set limits, recognizing that employees must be able to escape from work. The imperative to be constantly reachable by phone or tablet is taking a toll on work seen at the office. After seeing colleagues lose their jobs during the Great Recession, workers are more inclined to come in to work even when sick. After hours, physical presence is replaced by the next best thing, a virtual one. Many employees fear switching off, instead deciding to work on vacation, during dinner, and in bed with the help of smartphones, laptops, and tablet computers. People also have more data than ever to process. Information overload cost American businesses just under $1 trillion in employee time lost to needless emails and other distractions in 2010. The cost of replacing employees who leave in search of better work conditions is also a concern. A study from the Center for American Progress put the cost of turnover at just over a fifth of the employee's salary for people making up to $75,000 a year. 
That goes up exponentially for top managers with turnover costs as high as 213% of salary for highly paid positions. After worrying about trimming staff numbers during the recession, employers are focusing on how to keep those who are left from burning out. Though technology has helped boost productivity over the past few decades, it has come with related costs, like stress. Technology, for example, is eliminating the downtime or slack that used to be built into the day, such as the time one took going to the library to do research that can now be completed online. Those minutes used to act as a buffer that prevented people from working constantly. Though physical exhaustion was bad, conflicting mental demands can be more problematic, particularly in the United States, where professionals often don't have union contracts or the same paid overtime protection as hourly workers do. Companies haven't yet come to grips with how bad it is. Almost every organization is burying its head in the sand. It is hard for a company to control the amount of technology used in the workplace and at home, since it is integral to modern life. Volkswagen addressed the issue in a blunt, if effective, manner by deactivating some workers' email accounts once their shifts were over. Some companies have resorted to bolder measures. Quirky, a New York-based startup that shepherds inventions to the marketplace, has instituted a blackout week once a quarter, during which no one except customer service representatives are allowed to work, lest employees be tempted to check email. People were getting burned out. They needed to see other things besides their desk. And having that message come from the top is important. If you know that your boss is checked out, you're going to relax a bit and not worry that you're going to get an email. Well, let's hope that that trend continues and that it spreads to many, many more companies because there are a lot of people who are in danger of burnout. Well, with the Grammys having been on TV this past Sunday night, uh, I thought this article was appropriate. Pop songs may awaken fond memories for brain-damaged patients. You know those popular songs that you just can't get out of your head? A new study suggests they have the power to trigger strong memories many years later in people with brain damage. The small study suggests that songs instill themselves deeply into the mind and may help reach people who have trouble remembering the past. This is the first study to show that music can bring to mind personal memories in people with severe brain injuries in the same way that it does in healthy people. Music may be useful to use as a memory aid for people who have difficulty remembering personal memories from their past after brain injury. The inspiration for the study was a man who was severely injured in a motorcycle accident and couldn't remember much of his life. And the idea was to see if music could help him bring to mind some of his personal memories. The man became one of five patients who took part in the study. Another was also in a motorcycle accident. Another was hurt in a fall. The other two had brain damage from lack of oxygen to the brain due to cardiac arrest. And there was another case where the lack of brain 
oxygen was due to an attempted suicide. Now, all of these patients had memory problems. They ranged in age from their mid-20s to age 60. And the researchers played top of the Billboard chart songs from anywhere far back from 1961 up through 2010. For most of the patients, three out of the five, the songs did a better job of prompting memories about their lives than asking them questions about their pasts. They also remembered events from their lives about as well as similar people who didn't have brain damage. Patients really be, uh, reacted emotionally to the music. They smiled, they sang along, some of them danced, some of them got teary when a song they heard brought to mind a bittersweet memory, such as deceased parents. So this shows that music is a powerful stimulus for eliciting emotions, both positive and negative, and this is probably why it is so efficient at activating memories. <clears throat> now, the, uh, there are patients who couldn't recall their past but could still sing along to some of the songs, which suggests that we encode music more richly in our memories, and this affords more possibilities for other memories to get tied in. It's clear that music can help people with brain injuries, such as stroke. Anytime you can engage a brain and keep it active following injury, you are going to do good things for it. Music appears to be a great way to support that effort. Now, this study was recently published online in the journal Neuropsychological Rehabilitation. And reading about this also reminded me that uh, groups around reminiscence and playing old music are a, ready, a regular feature at uh, assisted living facilities and memory units for those of us who have Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so it is already a well-known phenomenon that music can stimulate memory. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. I definitely enjoyed bringing you this information, and I hope that you enjoyed it yourself and i hope that until we get together next week you have a wonderful stress-free week but if not then you need to call dr scott good night and thanks for listening